Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Lone Ranger and the Mystery Ranch by Fran Stryker. Volume 4, Chapter 11 The Hooded Leader There was something about him I didn't like and didn't trust. That's why I fibbed about the map. Sally was explaining her statements after the girls were in the room in which Natasha had led them. The room was slightly larger than the first, and furnished in much the same way. It was hardly different enough to call for switching bags and clothing as Grant Wickham ordered old Natacha to do. Sally had inspiration. The rug on the floor, hooked and oval, looked like the other. She pulled it back suddenly. Nope, she muttered after a close inspection of the floor. There's no trap door in this room. She replaced the rug, speaking as she did so. I wonder if he had us changed because of that trap door. Maybe he doesn't want us to find it. I wonder what he'd say if he knew we already found it. I'm more worried about the map than I am about the floor, replied Marge. The map is in the first room, and there's no way we could go there after it without answering a lot of questions. For a moment, Sally's forehead wrinkled in perplexity, and then she said, I might be able to sneak into that room after Uncle Grant has gone to bed. No, no, that won't do. If he caught me, he'd ask questions. I'm going after it right now. She picked up the comb she'd used a short time previously. In case anybody says anything, I'll just say that Natacha overlooked this. Marge began to remonstrate, but knowing Sally well, she felt it would be hopeless. Besides, she wanted desperately to have that map with her. The same thing that aroused Sally's vague suspicions impressed Marge. Grant Whitcomb hadn't acted in the least bit natural manner. Sally opened the door and peeked out. She saw no sign of either her uncle or Natacha. Then she boldly crossed the five-foot hall and entered the opposite room. While waiting for her sister to return, Marge reviewed the conversation with Grant Whitcomb. After seeing his nieces for the first time, his questions concerning their life, the affairs of his only relative, his brother, and the events surrounding his brother's death had been almost casual. March had the impression that he'd asked those questions merely to fill in conversation. His interest in the girl's replies had been nil. Another thing that March didn't like, her uncle's moodiness. She didn't like the sudden changes from genial host to cold-voiced man whose face was the hardest and sternest she'd ever seen a man whose anger might become a thing to fear. Then Sally returned and closed the door behind her with a grin. Nothing to it. Here's the map. She held the bit of paper toward Marge, who took it and tucked it into the toe of the shoe she just removed. That's a good place for it, commented Sally. What's more, it'll bear out what I told our uncle. It might easily have dropped into your shoe while it was packed in the grip. It'll do until tomorrow anyway, agreed Marge. I think we'll have the chance to find out more about this place tomorrow. Sally nodded. What do you think about the masked man? she asked. Marge looked at her sister curiously. Did you believe what Uncle said about him? The older of the girls shook her head slowly. I, I can't make myself believe that man is really bad, even in spite of the mask. Good! Sally was emphatic. 
That's just how I felt. Then she yawned, a great satisfying yawn, and began removing her clothes. Both girls were too tired to talk for very long. The bed was comfortable and the cool night air coming through the open window, an invitation for a good night's sleep. Back to back, the sisters burrowed beneath the coverings, and the last thing that Marge was conscious of was her sister's sleeping mutter. I'm disappointed in this room. We don't have any trap door in the floor. The girls slept soundly, but if they'd been able to overhear the things that were talked about outside the house that night, they would have understood why the place was called a hoodoo ranch. They would have fled from there as fast as possible, preferring death from hunger and exhaustion on the prairie to what the future held. When the Lone Ranger and Tonto left the girls a couple of miles from their uncle's ranch, it was the masked man's plan to return to the clearing in the woods. For several miles he rode in silence while the darkness gathered. From time to time he glanced at Tonto, but made no comment because the Indians seemed to be deep in thought. Though the Lone Ranger didn't know it, Tonto was debating with himself. He was trying to arrive at a decision as to whether or not it would be best to tell about the rumors he'd heard about the Whitcomb Ranch. After all, it was Natacha who had brought the stories to the Indians who had related it to Tonto. Natacha might be too old to think clearly. Her hearing might be dulled with age, and eyesight might be dim. Things told by old Natacha might not be worth recounting. If Tonto told them to his friend, he might be laughed at, and Tonto could not stand scorn and ridicule. Still, the Lone Ranger had yet to ever laugh at Tonto. If, after all, there really was something about the ranch that wasn't as it should be, the masked man should know about it. There was a strong dividing line between the things the Indians knew and those that came to the attention of the white men in the region. The Indians told things among themselves that never crossed the line to become the white man's knowledge. Many times it had been Tonto who had brought facts of this sort over the border, but those other times, the things that Tonto told the Lone Ranger were facts. This knowledge he had of the Wickham Ranch was merely hearsay, and the stories were started by an old crone, Natacha. Tonto would have thought no more about it if Sally hadn't mentioned what the cowmen in the stagecoach station told her. Finally, Tonto arrived at his decision. The Lone Ranger looked at him with curiosity when he broke the long silence of the ride. I want to talk, Kimasabi. Go ahead, Tonto. What do you want to talk about? I suppose it's time we stop long enough to see what food remains in our saddlebags anyway. That is not it. No? Tonto rode another hundred yards in silence while the masked man waited patiently for him to continue. Then he started, and once begun, he talked for many miles without a stop. He told every detail of the things Natacha had said about the Whitcomb Ranch. He explained how most of the Indians knew the stories were rife, and how no Indian would risk scorn by telling them to white men. Halfway through his recital, Tonto had to stop his horse to remain with that of the Lone Ranger. The masked man was genuinely interested, urging him to go on, pressing him for details. And why, he interrupted once, 
hasn't Natasha had someone investigate these findings? Tato answered by telling the masked man a thing he should have known. Indians had long since learned to keep to their own affairs and not interfere with anything done by white men. I don't understand it, the Lone Ranger said when Tato finished. That sounds as if Whitcomb might be involved in some pretty shady dealings. Tato nodded in agreement. And that doesn't check up at all. His reputation has always been the best a man can have. Honest as the day is long, a good man to work for, a square shooter, a good cattle raiser. That is why I did not tell you this before. Brant Wickham has lived on that ranch for as long as I can remember. Some people think he's a little strange because of the way he keeps to himself, but that's his business. He swung his horse around. We're going back to that ranch, Tonto. Tonto was pleased with the decision. He took a quick glance at the trail ahead, and then swung his own white horse about to head back the way they'd come, to return to the ranch that was labeled Hoodoo. We won't remain there for long, Tonto. I just want to make sure the girls are safe and sound in their uncle's care. Then we'll start again for the woods. We can camp there tonight, and tomorrow, if the outlaws aren't around, have a look at the clearing near Flynn's Bluff and see what there is to see. Everything when the Lone Ranger and Tonto arrived at the ranch was as silent as possible, and it seemed as it should be. Disliking the idea of being something of a prowler, but feeling the end justified the means, the Lone Ranger crept close to the house and peered in one window. The sight that met his eyes was reassuring. The girls, seeming in the best of spirits, were at the table in conversation with the uncle. The man was smiling genially, and both girls seemed to have enjoyed the meal they'd finished. Then, seeing another lit window, the masked man and Tonto crept along the side of the low house until the square of light was just above their heads. Looking into what was a bedroom, they saw old Natacha entering with the property of the girls. She handled the things carefully, putting each article in its proper place. Her lips were moving as she mumbled to herself. The girls are safe, and everything is being done to make them comfortable, the Lone Ranger whispered to his Indian companion. The old woman is talking to herself, growled the other in disapproval, as if that settled the matter of Natacha's reliability. The two were about to leave when Natacha saw the masked face at the window. It was then that she had screamed in fear, bringing Whitcomb to his feet in a hurry. Satisfied that all was well, at least for the time being, and anxious to get to the outlaw's camp, the Lone Ranger mounted his horse and rode away with Tonto following. It was not until two hours later when Marge and Sally were sound asleep that a short, squat man with a huge chest and shoulders left the Whitcomb house. His head and neck were covered by a black hood. He wore a sombrero over his hood and moved silently toward the corral. As he saddled and mounted a horse, he chuckled to himself. I'll have a few things to tell the boys tonight. Then after a pause, he added, maybe a trap to set for this lone ranger. If only he plans to go to the clearing. The leader of the Night Legion was on his way to meet his men. Chapter 12 
Council of War. The scorching sun beat down from a copper-colored sky. Heat waves rose from the hot, dusty row that divided the two rows of unpainted, sun-bleached buildings that made up the town of Showdown. Few people stirred there during the heat of the day, and those who did moved slowly and stopped frequently to slake their thirst and wash the dust from their throats. The cafes did steady business, and it was generally a group of men to be found gathered on the porch of the general store, swapping lies or relating new horrors of the Night Legion. It was here that riders from the Whitcomb Ranch had waited in vain on the previous afternoon for the arrival of Marge and Sally. It was in showdown that the arrival of the unguided horses at an empty stage brought news of tragedy along the trail. Dust billowed from the heels of Sheriff Cook as he dismounted from his horse and tossed the reins about the hitch rack. Anyone in my office? he inquired of the loungers on the porch. A couple of the men nodded as if speaking called for too much effort on a hot day. Another responded verbally. Walrus and that new deputy hired from Texas is in there. Sheriff Cook nodded his approval. His heels clumped on the porch. Holding the council of war this morning, he informed his friends. It was bad enough when those night legion killers stole cattle, but it was a dang sight worse when they took to cold-blooded murder. But now, he said emphatically, now they've gone and killed two of my deputies, by damn, and they are going to pay. The door slammed behind him, and he went inside, leaving those on the porch to pass the word that Sheriff Cook was madder than he'd ever been before. Without a glance in either direction, Sheriff Cook strode to his desk and sat in his chair and leaned back. He pushed his black hat far back on his head, revealing a shock of stiff iron-gray hair. Every part of his face, the thin, stern mouth, the heavy jaw, the bristling mustache and the long, straight nose denoted honesty and fearlessness. His eyes were deep and brown, overshadowed by thick brows, slightly gray to match his hair. His voice, when he greeted the two men who had been there ahead of him, was soft, his words carefully chosen, but he gave the impression of one who was not only used to giving commands, but also used to seeing those commands carried out to the letter. He unbuttoned his vest and then slid the ivory-handled forty-five from its holster and placed it on the desk. Sheriff Cook had a habit of making himself as comfortable as possible when there was an important matter to discuss. It was frequently said of him, when the sheriff takes off his coat and rolls up his sleeves, things happen. It was not until the sheriff finished with his personal affairs and mopped his face with a huge handkerchief that he paid the least amount of attention to the other two in the office with him. From long association, old Walrus Lonergan knew what to expect, and sat in his chair, tilted and nicely balanced against the wall, waiting patiently for his superior to get down to business. Walrus fingered the long mustache for which he was named. While he looked at the uneasiness of the youthful, newly sworn deputy, Tex Wilson was already tired of the inaction of waiting. Just before the arrival of Sheriff Cook, Tex had paced the floor with frequent pauses to light a cigarette, and a tailor made one at that, only to take a few puffs and then toss it into the brass cuspidor in the corner near the sheriff's desk. 
Now Tex crossed and uncrossed his legs and raked a match on the bottom of his chair to light another cigarette and seemed like a racehorse at the barrier, anxious to get into action to hunt down the murderers of the four men on the stage trail. During the time Sheriff Cook scanned through some letters on his desk, Walrus gave Tex Wilson a careful scrutiny. The fellow from the Lone Star State looked capable. In his stocking feet, he stood at least six feet tall. His high-heeled boots added two inches to this. He was lean-faced and narrow-hipped, but his shoulders had a good breath. Walrus saw the metal star in Tex's vest, and though the old-timer hated to share the honors of being a deputy with anybody, he was forced to admit grudgingly that Tex Wilson looked like he would do. He wondered how fast Tex was with a six-gun. As the sheriff finished with the mail that the stage had brought in, Walrus paused in his mechanical chewing and spat toward the cuspidor. His aim was perfect. He scored a direct hit and grinned toward Tex. At least an eight-foot shot, eh? He said. All right, gents. Sheriff Cook's voice brought both deputies to attention. Now we can get down to facts. He pushed the papers from the top of his desk into a drawer and closed it. Do you understand why you're being took on as a deputy? He asked, looking at Tex Wilson. The Texan nodded slowly. I sure do, he drawled. And I'm to take orders from you and follow them orders to the letter. That's right. That's what you're here to do. But do you know why I needed another deputy in a hurry last night? Lost a couple of men during the stage holdup, didn't you, Sheriff Cook? Right again. I happened to be on hand when the remains was brought in. I not only saw the deputies and garden driver, who was all drilled in cold blood without a chance to fight back, but I also saw the outlaws that had gone down in the gunfight. I might go on record as saying, Sheriff, I've never seen a more ugly pair of polecats in my entire life. They ain't a thing. I'd like more to do than to line up my gun sights on the rest of that outfit. They belong to the Night Legion. I done heard that. And the Night Legion drifted up this way from down where you came from. Maybe you didn't know that. Tex Wilson nodded. I know that also, Sheriff Cook. Fact is, I came up here for the same reason. Them skunks killed my paw. Walrus looked surprised at this. You didn't tell me that about yourself, he complained. You didn't ask, partner. But the true fact is, I'd have drilled them snakes on sight, even if it made me an outlaw to do it. Buzzers that'll torture a man with a boot and fist while he's hog-tied, and then drill him between the eyes, ain't deserving of a legal trial and hanging. Sheriff Cook broke in. Well, the law's on your side now. Tex Wilson, only be sure you're getting outlaws when you shoot, that's all. Wilson nodded. I don't know much about what them night legion critters done up around this country, but I do know about them down where I come from. If you ain't heard what they done around here, then by darn you ain't heard nothing, blurted Walrus. He spat another brown stream and scored another bullseye. 
Fast thing he saw a glint of approval in Tex Wilson's eye, he skidded his chair a couple of feet further away to prepare for his next shot. Let me tell him about him, he asked Sheriff Cook. The sheriff nodded and Walrus, eager to hold the attention of the man from Texas, began speaking. Started a couple of months ago when the Night Legion attacked Chuck Stillwater's place. They rid down, roaring wild and shooting hard. Shot Chuck and his wife and set fire to the house. Like ornery Apaches, commented Tex Wilson. Worse than Dot, Walrus seemed to speak with a voice of experience. They killed a half a dozen of the Wadis there, and rid off taking all the cattle with them. A couple of the boys died slow and had a chance to tell all about them critters with the black hoods on their heads. Walrus dramatized his story with many gestures. When he finished, Tex Wilson nodded. Same bunch, all right enough, he said. By the way, partner, I didn't get your name. Walrus gauged the distance to the cuspidor. Just call me Walrus, he said, and then let go another brown stream of tobacco juice and grinned in self-approval. Or you might call me Deadshot. The Stillwater raid was just the beginning, Sheriff Cook explained, taking up where Walrus left off. Every night after that, someone would go down before the guns of the Night Legion. Got to the point where folks didn't dare leave the house after dark. They was afraid to stay in the house. It's been getting worse all the time. The worst of it is those killers don't leave folks alone when they're finished. Even when the Stillwater Ranch Riders were left alive, they didn't much linger for very long. Couldn't tell very much. Then there ain't no clues as to who these men might be. No clues at all. There's no way of telling who they are or no way of telling where they'll strike. Don't seem to matter if it's horses or cattle or money or jewels. They just take anything they can get their hands on. Now take that stagecoach, for example. There wasn't nothing on there worth stealing. A couple of gals, said Walrus but the girls weren't on the stage when the night leech attacked it. There wasn't no reason for them to wipe out the guard and driver and my deputies. I understand the girls was nieces of a rancher north of here. That's right. They were coming to live with Grant Wickham. He owns the Wickham Ranch. And he had some men in town here to meet the girls, didn't he? Yep. What'd he say when them women folk weren't aboard? Nothing, interrupted Walrus. Them Whitcomb riders are a curious lot of men. They don't have nothing to say to no one. They don't even take a drink, would you believe it? He went on as if to him the thought was beyond comprehension. Them riders hired by Grant Whitcomb hanging around town all day in the hot sun and never took a single drink. Wickham won't hire a drinking man, Sheriff Cook explained to Tex. He's a curious sort himself, but I guess he pays his men top prices. They stick with him, they don't talk to strangers, and they obey orders. I don't savvy men like that. He just ain't natural, said Walrus, shaking his head slowly. I could have explained to the men that the girls were safe, the sheriff said. But they didn't mention anything to me, and I'll be damned if I'll talk when folks don't want to hear me. Where do the girls go? The deputies that died left a note for me, 
Seems they met a man they know they could trust and went with him. He took the girls off the stage with the deputy's help and cut north across the plains before the robbery took place. Walrus was gradually working up to another shot. In the corner of his eye, he watched Tex Wilson, so the young deputy from Texas wouldn't miss his show of skill. The old fellow was past the age when he could display a prowess with firearms or skilled horsemanship, and he was anxious to excite admiration of the things he could do. He caught Tex glancing his direction and tried to appear casual as he spat one more time. This time, however, the aim was short. He looked quickly at the sheriff and saw the glare in his boss's eyes and dropped his eyes crestfallen. Better forget that nickname a dead shot, he muttered. So, said Tex Wilson finally, there's the three of us to round up the Night Legion. Four, corrected Sheriff Cook. Tex looked at him questioningly. Dave Sands is the fourth. He's deputy about your age, but he ain't come in yet. Cook glanced at his big watch. He should be here by now. He went riding past the Cottonwoods to call out old Joe Frisbee. Walrus undertook to explain Joe Frisbee. He's a sort of hermit critter that lives alone in a shack. Every so often one of us rides to his place to see if he's still alive, or if old age has got him and he's needing a burial. A cloud of dust rose past the window outside the office, and the shouts of the men on the porch told of a new arrival. A hearty, vibrant voice shouted a general greeting to the men, and then the door burst open and Dave Sands, stamping dust from his boots, walked in with his face set in a mask-like expression. He slammed the door and walked straight to Sheriff Cook's desk. Dave Sands' face was streaked with sweat and dust. Foam flecks from a hard-ridden horse quivered on his clothing. In his gloved hand he held a note, which he slapped down on the desk of the sheriff, saying, Read that, Sheriff, and let me tell you, it's the truth. I done checked on it. Joe Frisbee has been murdered. Walrus choked out his cut at the news Dave Sands brought in. Sheriff Cook reached across his desk and took the note. There was dead silence while he read it, slowly digesting every crudely formed word. He could move quickly and with the agility of a panther when the need arose, but he also knew the value of making haste slowly and making sure of each fact as he went along. Before he commented on the death of Joe Frisbee, he wanted to study that note. Walrus was sputtering volubly about the murder of the old man. He never harmed a soul in his life. He wouldn't hurt a flea. He wouldn't do no one any harm, and there ain't nothing he had that anybody would want. Who done it? Named the dirty, sawed-off son of a polecat and let me at him with my six guns a-blazing. Tex stood up and he's close to Walrus. Shut up, he whispered. Walrus stared wide-eyed at the speaker and stopped talking, but his mouth hung open at the sharpness that had come into the drawling voice of Tex Wilson. When there's things to be done, keep still and wait for orders. Don't sit there spouting like a doggone hen that's done laid an egg. Sheriff Cook put down the note and looked at Sands. Where did you get that? Fastened to a tree. It told about Joe Frisbee. So I cut loose and went there fast. I found him dead, just like the note says, then come back here, figuring if we act fast, we might get the killers. 
Sheriff Cook nodded his approval and then introduced Dave Sands to Tex Wilson. As the deputies clasped hands, each one saw things that he admired in the other. Dave was slightly shorter than Tex, but broader through the chest. Each man had the same frank, sincere expression, and the clear eyes that denoted perfect physical fitness. Instinctively, both Dave Sands and Tex Wilson knew they'd become close friends before very long. This note, explained Sheriff Cook, tells that Joe Frisbee has been murdered. Goes on to say that if I want to get the killer, I'll find him sometime during the day in a clearing just south of Flynn's Bluff. It'll likely be camped near there. Then what are we waiting for? burst out Walrus impetuously. I know that clearing. I can take you right there. I've been there dozens of times. Let's get going so as I can get the chance to unlimber my gun. He spat now without caring where he hit, and then drew an old-fashioned pistol and waved it in the air. Sheriff Cook glared at Walrus again. Slowly, the noisy deputy holstered his gun, closed his mouth, and resumed his seat. Then Cook looked at Dave Sands. Bullet? he queried. Dave Sands nodded. It was a bullet that got him, but he'd been knifed in the back as well. The knife wound was patched up, first rate. Place was messed up something fierce, though. How's that? Busted furniture, bricks tore from the fireplace, boards ripped from the floor, and the bed split open. Looked to me like whoever done this job was hunting for something. Money? I thought so at first. Lots of folks has crazy notions that every man that lives alone has a side of money hid away somewhere. But after I studied things a while, I figured it must have been something a lot smaller than cash on account of the places where they went hunting. For example? Well, you couldn't hide much cash in the leg of a chair or a table, but they'd look in all them places. I thought it might have been something like an important paper. Sheriff Cook finally jammed his gun into leather and buttoned his vest. Boys, as long as we don't know who the members of the Night Legion are, we can't take in any more deputies because we don't know who to trust. That means there's just the four us. The others nodded their understanding, though the death of Joe Frisbee might be one more killing by the Night Legion. And though the Night Legion might number many score of members, the four had to stand alone against them. You boys all set? Dave and Tex Wilson nodded, and Walrus said, You betcha! Then the quartet left the office to go to the clearing in the woods, the same clearing that the Lone Ranger planned to go to. Chapter 13 Capture and Escape After the scorching hot stretch of open, dusty country between showdown and the dense woods, the coolness of the trees came as a comforting welcome relief to Sheriff Cook and his three aides. They rode in a single file, breaking a trail through the timber, with old walrus taking the lead and guiding them toward the clearing near Flynn's Bluff. He seemed to know where he was going, to know the woods far better than any of the others. During the ride across the plains, he told how in his younger days he had spent many days exploring the woods. He described the clearing in minute detail and explained how Flynn's Bluff came to get its name. He even knew of a cave in the bluff right at the edge of the woods. The quartet of lawmen were not the only ones who were headed for the clearing. The Lone Ranger, coming from another direction, had the same place as a destination. He was doing precisely what the leader of the hooded men, the boss of the Night Legion, thought he'd do. 
He was going directly into the carefully planned trap, unaware of the note that Dave Sands had found. The Lone Ranger and Tonto were refreshed by a good night's rest. It had been well past daybreak before they had wakened, and the masked man recalled with amusement the disgust of Tonto when the Indian opened his eyes to find the sun already slanting through the leafy ceiling of their woodland camp. They might have slept even longer had it not been for Silver, the great white stallion, unable to comprehend the breaking of day and the rising of the sun with his master asleep, had awakened the Lone Ranger by a gentle muzzling at the sleeping masked man's side. The two made breakfast a hasty meal, then with their few utensils washed and stowed away in saddlebags, they were in the saddle and on their way toward the outlaw's camp of two nights previous. It's just as well, the Lone Ranger said, that we went back to the Whitcomb Ranch last night. If we'd gone there in the darkness, it would have been pretty hard to find anything. Tonto nodded grimly, still somewhat angry with himself for what he considered laziness and oversleeping. Lots of lawmen have hunted clues, he muttered, and no one's found a thing. That's just why I'm glad we're going there in daylight. It'll be hard to read the signs about the camp in daylight, and it'll be harder at night. For a time, the Indian rode in silence the only sound being the hooves of the horses on the soft loam of the woods. The other lawmen, he said at length, they've all died. The lone ranger was well aware of this. Of all those who had set out to run down the night legion, especially the leader, these two alone, the masked man and the Indian, had survived. The others were dead. He recalled the Texas rangers who had died at the hands of the outlaws he sought, and his resolve to somehow stick to the trail until he ran the fiendish killers to earth was renewed. The boss didn't like loose ends. Well, he'd left one when he'd failed in his attempt to get the Lone Ranger, and that one loose end would be his undoing. Random thoughts passed through the masked man's mind while he followed Tonto through the forest. The boss he knew was well aware of that loose end that dangled and constant vigilance was needed to avoid the traps the boss might set for him. Subconsciously, his senses were constantly attuned to pick up the least unusual sound or sight. The odor of a campfire would have brought him to a sudden halt. His guns would flash to readiness, and he would be alert and ready for action. The sound of a horse other than his own or Tonto's, the sight of any moving object in the forest, would be caught by his alert attention. Lone Ranger didn't underestimate his adversary's power. He was fully aware of the fact that in the boss of the Night Legion, he was pitted against the coldest, shrewdest, most calculating, and by far the most ruthless enemy of law and order the West had ever known. A man who was a leader of other men, a dominating king of the lawless band, and one who was totally unknown, even to his most trusted lieutenants. Yet in Tonto, the Lone Ranger had an ally whose skill in reading trail signs and interpreting the most insignificant mark on the ground and in following a spore was unsurpassed. Tonto would prove a tower of strength in any fight, and Tonto, he knew, would gladly lay down his life at any time for the cause of justice or for the Lone Ranger. He was counting on Tonto more than the Indian realized in making his return trip to the clearing. During the hand-to-hand -hand battle of two nights before, he saw something that Tonto had been too occupied to notice. He saw the only man among the outlaws who was hooded, making his escape. 
He knew after discussing events with Tonto later that this man was the boss. He recalled the exact place where the boss had left the camp and his men to fight their own fight while he mounted his horse to escape among the trees. There had to be footprints there. One single footprint would be enough for Tonto. Having seen it, studied it, and measured it, the Indian would never forget it. The print might be all that was needed to identify the leader of the Night Legion. They passed a trail which crossed at right angles to the course they were following. Joe Frisbee's place is over that way, Tonto, commented the Lone Ranger. That's right. As soon as we have a chance, we must send men there to give the poor man a decent burial. Then we must tell the sheriff of the county about the man we found hanging. Tell him about the graves in the valley as well. Tonto nodded agreement. Then the two continued in silence for the better part of a half an hour, and finally they arrived at the clearing in the woods. In daylight it seemed smaller than it had during the night. It was a natural room, one of nature's whims. A large slab of stratified rock had been deposited here in some distant age of the past. The centuries that followed had covered the rock with a layer of several inches of mud and clay, enough to support grassy overgrowth, but not deep enough to afford trees a root hold. The clearing was surrounded on all sides by giant trees whose branches interwove overhead and made a ceiling thirty feet above the ground. Traces of the camp were clearly visible. The charred remains of the fire, the indentations of the horse's hooves, and here and there a deeper mark where the hooves of silver had lashed down and struck the ground with terrific force. The Lone Ranger and Tonto dismounted in the center of the clearing, and the masked man went directly to the place where he had last seen the boss. Sure enough, the print was there. Several footprints of a heavy man with short but exceptionally broad feet. Best of all, the boot had a peculiar hobnail pattern that would make it easily recognized if ever seen again. So intent were the two men in their inspection of the footprint that for once their vigilance was relaxed. A soft whinny from silver should have warned them. At almost any other time, the uneasy sound of the big white horse would have found the masked man and the Indian whirling to one side, snatching at guns, ready to ward off an unexpected attack. But now, before the actual footprint of the man they'd hunted for so long, the warning of the horse fell on deaf ears. When the Lone Ranger first became aware of danger, it was too late to act. The sharp voice of Sheriff Cook cracked like a whip in the clearing. Put up your hands! You're covered on all sides! At first, the Lone Ranger thought the order came from the members of the Night Legion, who had returned to their camp. He felt that any fast move would bring certain death roaring from a half-dozen six-guns, so he lifted his hands slowly to shoulder level, and then rose to his feet and turned toward the voice. We got you by thunder! We got you flat-footed! That was Walrus who spoke, gloating over the ease of the capture and delighted to find but two men there where he thought he'd be against big odds. The masked man studied the situation. He counted four men in all, each holding a gun level. They were spread so far apart it was impossible to watch them all at the same time. The badge on Sheriff Cook's vest caught his eye, and despite the fact that he was captured by the law, he was glad to note it wasn't the hooded men who had come. The law might unmask him and put an end to all he hoped to do in the future. 
but he would at least have the chance to discuss matters before cold-blooded shooting cut him down. He could, even if jailed on suspicion, pass on what he'd learned to the lawmen and hope they might carry on where he and Tonto had left off. He was about to speak when the tallest of the quartet spoke in a soft, drawling voice, characteristic of Texas. Mister, they just ain't no use trying to put up no argument, either with your tongue or guns. We'd a darn sight sooner shoot you here and now and take you to tan trial, and all we need is a sudden move on your part to do the same. Tex Wilson spoke the truth, and the Lone Ranger knew it. He wondered just how the sheriff's men happened to come here, and thought it would be a simple matter to establish his innocence of anything they might plan to charge him with. The next moment, however, split his theories wide open. He asked what charges he was supposed to be arrested on, and Sheriff Cook responded. Robbery and murder. We're holding you for the murder of a man named Joe Frisbee. This was due to the Lone Ranger. Joe Frisbee? He questioned. I had no part in the murder of that man. So you deny you ever went near his place? As he spoke, the sheriff eyed the newly made footprint on the ground. Take a look, he said to one of the deputies. And tell me if those match the prints of Frisbee's shack. Dave Sands studied them a moment, and then he said, I'd stake my life on it. There was no use denying the fact that he'd been to Frisbee's, so the Lone Ranger admitted it and then tried to explain just what took place when he got there. It was a night legion who killed Joe Frisbee, he concluded. We followed the hooded men to this clearing, and then we had to leave in a hurry. We came back here today to examine the footprints of the boss of the night legion. He indicated the peculiar footprint on the ground near where he stood. I don't know how you happen to come here, but it is a fact that you're going to let the real criminals escape if you waste time with me. Sheriff Cook showed his expression that he didn't believe a word of the masked man's story. For one moment, the Lone Ranger thought of explaining how he had gone to the lawman's office in showdown and persuaded two of the deputies that he was actually working on the same side of the law as they were and secured their aid in rescuing Sally and Marge. Then it struck him forcibly that the deputies were dead. There would be no way to prove a story that would sound too fantastic for the sheriff to believe. Take his guns, ordered Sheriff Cook. Tex Wilson stepped forward to disarm the masked man. Capture meant unmasking. It meant the end of everything he had hoped to do. It might mean even worse than jail. As the facts stood, there was a strong case against him, and the folks in showdown aroused to a fever pitch of red hate for the outlawry in the region, would be unlikely to wait for trial in the court of law. A lynching would be practically inevitable. It wasn't that the Lone Ranger feared death. He knew that someday he would go down, fighting for the things which he stood for. But there was so much yet to be done, so much that needed doing that he felt himself qualified to accomplish. The approach of Tex Wilson seemed like the approach of doom to him. No, he would not let himself be captured. A quick glance showed him his horse standing close at hand, and a couple of yards beyond Tonto's horse. Tonto, he knew, would fall into perfect alignment with whatever he attempted. Tex Wilson was but six feet from him when he barked a sharp command. His voice carried a ring that Silver knew. The great stallion, carefully and painstakingly trained for just such emergencies, went into action. 
His great muscles leapt into play, like a steel spring suddenly released from tension. Silver left the ground with all four feet at once, in a lunging spring toward Tex Wilson. The other three men watching the masked man didn't see the horses move for the split second before Tex crashed to the ground. The deputy's sudden yell of surprise attracted the attention of the others, and it was in that instance that the Lone Ranger and Tonto acted. They leapt forward, knocking down the guns of Sheriff Cook and Dave Sands, while Silver and his charge pushed Walrus to one side, and to break his fall, the old-timer dropped his guns. These men, however, were lawnmen, temporarily opposed to the Lone Ranger through their misunderstanding of the situation. They were nonetheless fighting for the same things he fought for, and he didn't want to hurt them. He shouted to Silver, who was already rearing to strike down with those sharp forehooves of Tex Wilson prone on the ground. Silver responded quickly, swinging to one side to drop his hooves, harmlessly a scant foot from the lawman. Then for two long minutes there was a mad melee of flying hands, arms, and legs. The old deputy named Walrus reached to retrieve his gun and saw it spin ten yards away when a fast shot from the Lone Ranger's gun struck it squarely. Tonto's fist smashed down on Dave Sand's forearm, paralyzing it with pain making him unable to use a weapon for an hour to come. The masked man's weapon spoke again, and the gun dropped by Sheriff Cook was smashed beyond repair. To the saddle, cried Lone Ranger, suiting the action to the word by leaping to the back of Silver. Tonto in the saddle shouted a command, and his horse was underway. The Lone Ranger shouted, Hi-ho, Silver! Sheriff Cook, burning with fury at the surprise attack, grabbed Dave Sands' gun from the grass where it had fallen. He swung to fire point-blank at the flash of white horse flesh that thundered past and heading for the woodland depths when the Lone Ranger's shout came to him. Silver. That high-o silver rang a familiar chord. The sheriff held his fire. Walrus was on his feet, fumbling in his efforts to make use of the gun dropped by Tex Wilson but Tex beat him to it and grabbed the weapon and jerked it to bear on the fast-moving horse that was just visible through the dense growth. Hold it! barked the sheriff. Don't fire! Shoot him! Shoot him! screamed old Walrus. What you waiting for? Let him have it! Bring him down! He's one of them night legion! Night legion nothing! Sheriff Cook's shout topped that of Walrus. That man ain't in the night legion. He said hi-o silver! That was the Lone Ranger. His modesty made the Lone Ranger totally unaware of the way his ringing cry had spread throughout the region. He had no way of knowing about Sheriff Cook's new attitude toward him. As far as the Lone Ranger knew, his sudden burst for freedom had made both him and Tonto outlaws sought by the men of Showdown for the murder of Joe Frisbee. Now he must be more careful than ever as he tracked down the boss of the Night Legion. Capture now meant certain death by the hangman's rope and the only way to clear himself was to bring the real murderers of poor old Joe to justice. <laughs>